and welcome to Biocentury This Week's special podcast. I'm Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief at Biocentury, and I'm joined today by three eminent business development leaders in the biopharma industry. I have James Sabry, Global Head of Partnering at Roche, Paul Biondi, Executive Partner at Flagship Pioneering, and Rob Hirschberg, Venture Partner at Frasier Life Sciences. Paul was previously Head of Partnering at Bristol Myers Squibb, where he sat the other side of the table from Rob, who led business development at Celgene at the time of the big BMS Celgene deal. I want to focus today on how farmers and biotechs can work together in this environment to show that innovation continues. I think it's pretty much an established fact that most of the innovation in the industry comes from small companies or even academic groups, and that farmers are increasingly dependent on those to fill their pipelines. But those companies are the most vulnerable ones right now. So, Rob, you sit on several company boards, and you're in a VC firm, and you've been in a big biotech. So you've seen lots of sides of this coin, albeit only one of them during a pandemic. What are your boards talking about? You know, it's an interesting time for, for people in, in small cap and private biotech boards in that I don't think that we understand where the bottom really may be. You know, it's been an incredibly volatile time, a lot of changes in terms of people's perceptions. And so I think the initial view was just to hold on and, and see what to do. Clearly, there are plan A, B, C, D at board meetings trying to figure out when people go back to work, whether this is really settled down. And I think there's just a, a tremendous degree of, of uncertainty, but still, I think a, a palpable enthusiasm and, and optimism for the, the opportunity for the entire sector. So I think it's, it's net positive, but a little bit of caution. You know, Rob, it, it's interesting from the Roche perspective, what we're seeing is still a deep interest in deals and companies kind of acting as though in a similar way to if there was no pandemic, are you seeing also that companies are trying to approach pharma in a different way, either earlier or with more upfront or more interest in cash position? Because from our perspective, it looks kind of like business is normal, even though we're in the middle of this pandemic with all the market effects that may have afterwards as well. I mean, I think that's really encouraging to hear. And I definitely see from the venture side that the deal flow is, is really rich right now. There are a lot of good companies out raising money. There's a lot of good stories. I think it really depends where the company is sitting. You know, companies with early stage clinical programs, I think, are struggling a little more because of all the uncertainty and all the change around doing clinical trials. I think platform companies with preclinical programs, I think, are feeling uh, a little bit more relief. And clearly, I mean, there's always an interest in, in most companies in, in partnering, particularly with you, James. But I, I, I do think that there's just this element of caution. There's just an element of of caution until we know where, where this settles. I think folks just need to preserve cash and deal with their workforce, make sure that everyone's safe and coming back to work and, and really trying to figure out, will there be another wave and another uh, workforce shutdown and how to just view the next six to 12 months. So Paul, do you agree I mean, I, with that? And do you think we haven't reached yeah, the bottom yet? I agree that I think there's kind of a positive sentiment around some aspect of what's going on. You know, I think there's just general public investor sentiment of, Hey, look at the whole industry coming to the savior here with hopefully COVID treatments and vaccines and preventative medicines. It's giving kind of a halo versus where we were, right? Which is constant backlash and pricing and all kinds of negativity. So I think that's been a positive upside. And I think just the fact that, hey, we've, you know, you just see the speed by which the entire industry pivoted to apply both traditional and new technologies <clears throat> and to James' point, working together. I mean, I, I've just been amazed by the COVID deals. And I, and I hope that has some stickiness into the future of 
hey, look how quickly one, you can get deals done. And I think right now, to Rob's point, some people really need help, particularly on the clinical side, figuring this out. And that's been, I think, hopefully a good trend going forward. I do think the negative side is the impact, maybe outside of oncology, because it seems like some oncology trials are still moving forward, but in a lot of other sectors and therapeutic areas, the clinical trials have just kind of come to a halt. Paul, one thing I'd love to get your view is diagnostics, because one thing we have found, and Roche, as you know, is, is the diagnostics group is the largest diet company in the world, and we are providing not only diagnostics for being infected, but also for serology for previous infection and, and maybe immunity. I see diagnostics as now kind of having a sort of a, an upswing and a recrudescence in some ways, and people finally realizing how important the diagnostic piece is to the whole healthcare sector rather than just pharma, I'd be curious, are the companies that, that you're working with seeing diagnostics as part and parcel of how they should think about developing medicines at the same time? Yeah, I, I agree. No, I, it's funny. We've been having a lot of this. I mean, some of it has been in the specific context, right? Looking for, hey, when it's actually fantastic what you guys put out because we needed a really like, no kidding, reliable neutralizing antibody test. So that I think is encouraging. And again, you're right, it's getting people thinking about the whole paradigm. You know, it's interesting too. We've got a company, Seven Cents, which does at-home blood draws, like full blood draws that you can do in a, a very simple device. There's been a lot of interest of like, hey, that's going to be a key need either to run some types of clinical trials on a remote basis in the future or just when employers or whatever, just trying to get people tested so they don't have to go into a phlebotomy center. So I, I do think that hopefully that's a, a neat resurgence in terms of interest in the whole diagnostic space and applying that to what we're doing broadly. I agree. Yeah. James, I think it's a really neat thought, and, and this company that you know well, Adaptive Biotechnology, you did a wonderful deal with them, and I've been on their board for a number of years, and it's a company that interrogates the immune system, and their platform has really been focused on understanding cancer, but now, all of a sudden, everyone's thinking about COVID. You wonder, you know, can these diagnostic tests that broadly interrogate the immune system have broader implications, and I think this is a good opportunity for companies with great technology like that to show off their wares. Uh, there's so much exposure now. Everyone is looking at the sector so, Robin, and they're looking is, for information. Is this the pivot point that diagnostics will now be able to take off? I mean, you know, we all know how hard that's been. Is this going to be a difference maker? So I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think this is going to be a pivot point more broadly. I think, as you pointed out, Simone, there's just been this broad groundswell for using diagnostics as part of the therapeutic paradigm. I think all of us that are in this space know that it intuitively makes sense. It's just a matter of time. I, I think, you know, this is really focused on COVID and I hope people's imagination will sort of carry us in. But I, I think there's just been a steady stream in diagnostics. And I think companies like Roche who have been in this space for a long time and thinking about this intersection between diagnostics and therapeutics are gonna be the winners in the end. Yeah, there really are you know, what are they thinking about this, Simone. And one is, what is the specifics around more detailed understanding of the immune response to COVID? One thing about this virus is that it seems to generate a great variability of immune response. Some patients with absolutely very little in the way of immune response and others with, with almost a cytokine storm, which has been very difficult to treat. And now you're seeing the emergence of drugs that suppress the immune system potentially as treatments for coronavirus infection, which is kind of a neat, at the beginning anti-intuitive, but then if you think about yeah. the immune system being revved what? up. And so as Rob, as Rob yeah. points out, and there could be a diagnostic around that as well. And then finally, and this is, I think, where you're getting at with adaptive, Rob, is, is could this usher in 
a more sophisticated way of thinking about diagnostics and therapeutics. Absolutely. It's really the flip side of the same coin. Yeah, yeah. because it seemed like before you know, on this, we were doing a lot around immuno-oncology. And I don't know that there was such a robust understanding of how that actually biology really works. And versus like, hey, this is a much more traditional approach. And if we can use the diagnostics to really understand this kind of strange immuno-response that we're seeing, you know, in this ARDS stuff, I, I think that hopefully opens this up more broadly. I totally agree. No, I just think it's, it, again, as an immunologist, I, when you have a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And I think this shines a tremendous light on immunology as a driver of, you know, so many diseases. And you look at this, it's infectious disease, and you think it's a virus story. But in the end, it's an immune story. And so I think companies that are nibbling around the immune system really independent of virology are, are, are emerging here. You've got a whole huge numbers of people who get infected but apparently are carriers or asymptomatic. Aren't the clues in those people to the biology of this? Weren't are the immunologists all, all over this? Well, I'll just give you my two cents, and I'm curious to hear Paul's and, and James. I, I think in, in many of these circumstances, it's always good to look at the outliers. The outliers, people that are infected that don't have symptoms, and also the people that are infected and have the exaggerated symptoms. As we settle in now, it's clear that the demographics that are mostly dying from this virus are the elderly. And as James pointed out, it's associated with an exaggerated immune response in the end. And so I think folks are looking at these clues. And, you know, Paul mentioned this earlier. I'm astonished at the deal flow around COVID, how aggressively people are moving into this space, how quickly people are able now to develop therapeutic platforms, diagnostic platforms. And I think it's a harbinger of how fast biotech can move when focused and kind of curious to hear what James and Paul are seeing in this regard, too. We, we repurposed a, a chunk of our business development group at Roche specifically around COVID just to address that issue, Rob. And we've gotten hundreds of both incoming and we've reached out to companies and academics. So there's a lot of work here. I wonder whether this will open up a, a more sophisticated view of how the immune system responds to viral infection. Um, there's many things about this virus that have been surprising, one of them being the variability and the nature of the immune response. The second one being the endothelial and potentially coagulopathy piece of this that is giving rise to a number of other symptomatologies. And I wonder whether this actually was more common even with other viral infections, but because what wasn't as severe or wasn't quite as acute as the pandemic been right now that we kind of ignored them. So I, I think this is a mo in some ways a very modern pandemic, right? We're using tools like adaptive and other ones yeah. to look at this in a way that we couldn't, you know, 10 years ago. And I, I'm very interested yeah. in how this changes, how we think about the relationship between infection and the host system for other diseases as well. Rob, to your point, I think what's been amazing is just the applicability of so many technologies to so quickly get into this. I mean, I just take like Evolo is one of the flagship companies, right? They've got kind of single strain microbiome effect and looking at that in a phase two study now or going into a phase two study to show how that can be beneficial in managing that. That kind of pivot, I think, you know, the RNA technologies and obviously the head start that somebody like Moderna had because they were already focused on infectious disease. James, I just want this to be a lesson to you that if you ever leave Big Pharma, then you have to insert these shameless plugs for all the companies that your venture firms are <laughs> Yeah, are no, I wasn't going to comment on that, but you guys are now clearly yeah, moved like, over into that, that, yeah, that it era it, of it behavior. Didn't, it, it's so great it didn't to take see. Us, it didn't take us long. Yeah, thank it, you. It, it took sure you all a couple of days, right. Rob. Yeah, it's good to see. Yeah, you, you know, you um, get, you get paid for placement, you know. Paul, one yeah, point yeah. I was going to ask you is, and you talked about this with regards to clinical trials, the companies that you see that are in the clinic, we're seeing 
widespread slowdown, obviously, in recruitment of clinical trials, given that patients aren't wanting to go into hospitals, they have fear about being in a healthcare setting during a pandemic, et cetera. And large companies like ours can actually work around that with measures of, of getting to patients' houses and other things on the clinical trial operations side. But my sense is that small companies probably don't have those kinds of resources. I'd be curious as to how some of your companies are thinking about how to respond to potential delays of clinical trials and what that means for them in terms of capital allocation and these kinds of issues. Because that's another thing where I think, I'm thinking about on the partnering side where we can be potentially of assistance to some companies that may have some challenges in that area. I think for the clinical stage companies, this is kind of the existential problem, which is how do they necessarily get access and thinking about more innovative ways on this. To be credit to some of the CROs, I mean, they've come forward and really reacted quite fast to try to say, hey, here's some things that you could do. Here's a set of trial centers that, you know, we have set up that are operating in a COVID environment, et cetera. But it is more challenging. And I I do imagine that people are reaching out, thinking about partnerships, not just simply because of greater financial resources and what have you, but also because maybe you can come in and help them get these programs back on track a lot faster and, or even just deal with the consequences of, you know, missing data and things where you guys are ahead of the curve with the FDA about how you could overcome some of those challenges. Do do you think digital, well, digital endpoints, but also remote monitoring is going to make a difference to that, so yeah. be an upswing well, in that. Yeah, well, at, well, for sure. I think it's an amazing sure. catalyst, for, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it will the, be. The other thing, Simone, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the other thing is real-world data controls. I mean, we're starting to see FDA accept that for control ends, and how wonderful it is to, now that we have a, a, an informatics or big data part of this industry, which is evolving quickly, I wonder whether this is a real opportunity for us to really really put some muscle behind that in a way of being able to have a resilient, uh, a resilient, innovative healthcare sector that can do clinical trials and keep innovative regardless of what the environment is like. I mean, I think that's kind of what we're seeing is that this healthcare sector is responding to COVID, but we're also continuing to work on the other important medical problems of the day. And they're not going away, right? I mean, we still have cancer. We still have heart disease. We still have immunologic and neurologic disease. And uh, even though all of us are focused on on this virus right now, we cannot ignore the fact that the majority of human suffering does not come from coronavirus infection and still well, needs innovative therapy. I think there were reports today, and it's obvious that there's a whole bunch of cancers going undiagnosed of people, you know, not going to the Yeah, I think figuring out this way to telemedicine and remote thing, I mean, I hope there's a ton of stickiness around that. And also that we get a chance after this with the FDA and the industry to take a step back and say, hey, this stuff works great. Like, why not just adopt this going forward? Just like we were talking to pedantic things around like, hey, how industry meetings are going to change, right? To more of this kind of format, I I don't think the in-person stuff will go away, but I think more people will attend remotely if they can. So I want to just go back to one thing that Rob said earlier. And, and, you know, it's this idea of platform versus asset-based deals, for example, or, or companies. Do you think this environment is going to change the appetite as one or other a more stable place to be right now? You sort of tiptoed in that direction, Rob, before you mentioned that. Maybe you want to elaborate. You know, again, it, it, this has been the, an ongoing debate in small companies between asset versus platform. I think it's clear now that companies with platforms, I think, are weathering this storm a little bit better than single asset companies that are in the in the clinic. I think it's a hard thing for a small company with a lead asset that has some delay in their clinical trials now to 
to be thinking about their profile. Conversely, I think a lot of companies are looking at, at you know, this as a potential time to catch up. I've seen companies that are working on targets that might be a stage or two behind a big pharma company. And this is a time where good late stage clinical development, I think, can help people catch up. And I do think that people are using COVID as an opportunity to show the value of their platform. So you see companies that are developing, you know, drugs for oncology or other indications that now sort of turn their attention to COVID, probably trying to secure some degree of money, but also show the world what their platform can do. So I, I think the pendulum acutely has swung towards the, the benefit of a platform company, but I think that debate will will rage on, you know, for, forever. So, so for my own shameless plug for Biocentury's portal, which you can see at biocentury.com slash coronavirus, we've got more than 400 compounds that, that people have, have told us about, submitted in development, uh, includes therapies and vaccines. Many, many of them, as you say, were redirected. They may not be repurposed because they may not have been approved. But, yeah, there's really a huge amount of companies that are saying this can work. Here's just a good testing ground for my technology or so on. Paul, you were going to yeah. respond, I think. Yeah, no, I, I think that we're seeing a lot of that. I think when we were having discussions about a lot of the platform companies that they see value in just demonstrating that this can work effectively in this disease. And, you know, that's good because, I mean, geez, look at the 400 shots on goal that they're going to come out of this. So I think a lot of people kind of scratch their heads and say like, oh, we're not going to need all of that. But, you know, in some ways you can see a situation where, hey, like, why not see if these technologies can win? And we don't have a sense of like what, what the need is, right? I mean, it, it really could be very, even with vaccines, I think a high level of need for treatment, certainly prophylactics. So, you know, I think all of that in the end, if people are doing it for strategic and direct reasons, I think that that could be a benefit for both society and the company. And Simone, from our perspective, platform companies are extremely attractive. You know, obviously, we did a deal recently with a company called Arrakis, and that was, you know, their CEO and I got on a Biosentry podcast last week. But the, see, I can plug deals just as well as you can. I'm about to say, did you pay him on that? I'm, I'm, I'm already halfway to being a venture capitalist with that kind of behavior. That was so smooth. So the point I was trying the point I was trying to make before I was interrupted by the two of you was that these companies like Arrakis and other ones that build these platforms and take the time and and actually you know kudos to you guys for making the capital available these are really attractive to us because this is something we wouldn't do at Roche right we we wouldn't spend the amount of money that Gilman has to develop an RNA small molecule binding platform but. We can do these attractive, you know, large capital deals such as the ones we did to gain access to this technology while still allowing there to be enough left at the platform company. And this is key, right? So they have some value at the company going forward. And although single asset companies, if the asset is attractive, are also enjoyable deals to do, I have a personal enjoyment of doing deals like the one we did at Rackus, like the acquisition of Spark, where we're bringing in whole technologies to complement what we have at Roche. And I think from the pharma perspective, I mean, there's really no better corporate structure to innovate around new ways of treating disease than a small company. And companies like Spark and Arrakis are really good flagships of, of these kinds of these kinds of companies. I, I'm going to end with a, a, a poll question for each of you. So, of course, there's a lot of focus on vaccines. You know, there's a lot of sense that this won't we won't really get the economy back until there's a vaccine and so on. But we know for HIV, it wasn't a vaccine that solved it. There isn't a vaccine. There's no vaccine for any coronavirus yet. So, you know, there is a sense therapies 
uh, cocktails of therapies may be what wins out. So crystal ball question here, is it going to be a vaccine? Is it going to be therapy? What, what, what do you think is going to get us out of this? Who's going first, James? Uh, yeah, so let me, I'm, I'm not a vaccinologist, but let me give you just some reflections. I think we have to put a full core press on every possible way of treating this virus. We are not out of the woods yet. There are, although we are seeing some early activity from remdesivir, the, the anti, the COVID polymerase inhibitor from Gilead, we're still not out of the woods yet. And so I believe that it's going to be a combination of vaccines, small molecules, and large molecules. And if you look at a virus like influenza, what we're starting to see is it's really treated. There's a vaccine that comes out every year. We are marketing Zofluza for the treatment of influenza. Tamiflu is also available. So it's a combination of both. And it's my expectation that coronavirus will be similar. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think you can think about it in a couple of different ways. Hey, very early in the understanding of the natural history of this disease. And, you know, it seems like every day we're learning new things about how it actually works and everything, even from like, hey, what are the viral load kinetics and do people produce neutralizing antibodies? How long does that last, et cetera? So, you know, I do think you're going to need lots of options. If you think about it, you know, vaccines, like just take the nursing home challenge, which is probably one of the scariest things going on right now is, you know, traditionally, you know, vaccines in elderly populations, they have more limited effectiveness. So you can think about the need for that prophylaxis and the treatments that people that for whatever reason can't take it or don't take it. And, you know, I do think that there's, James, absolutely right. We're going to need, right now, we're going to need lots of options. And, you know, and then that doesn't even address the whole, how do you try to address the whole immunological ARDS phenomenon. So I, I think that that's what bodes well for why it's fantastic that there are 400 trials or compounds right now being tested because, you know, we just don't know as much as we'd like to about how this virus works. I'll just, I'll add it, you know, it's, it's fun, it's easy to agree with my esteemed colleagues and friends, Paul and James. I think it's going to be a multi-pronged approach, but let me just add two things. One is, well, three things. One is that I think the immune system and these nuances are going to be really important. So I think beyond the viral biology, understanding the immune system is going to be key. I think that it's amazing how important the genetic epidemiologists have been. You think from the time the, the virus was sequenced and surveyed, looking at mutation rate, I think we can't lose track of the fact that until we understand this virus more, and this is outside of the realm of any of these therapeutics, this, the data that we need that are emerging from the public health sector are, sector are critical for us to figure out what to do. And I'm, I'm really proud. And, and finally, I, I must admit, this is, I've been in biotechnology for, for 20 years. This is a proud time for our industry. You know, we're attacking this with a vengeance. I think there's a ton of altruism. I mean, clearly people are trying to keep their companies afloat, but there's a collective altruism across the entire sector from the large pharma companies down to the startups. And we're going to figure it out. I'm convinced. I think it's, it's not going to be tomorrow, but I think we'll get there. And I think people will be proud of how we, we approach this when we look back in history. Well, that is a I did want to make one last comment, you know, and, 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 We've been talking a lot about this concept of health security, and, and I really hope that that's maybe one of the major paradigm shifts, which is rather than kind of like the, hey, we're just treating, you know, the sick comment, the idea of like, hey, let's think of a way in which we can encourage so much more of this to be happening as a proactive measure. I mean, you just when you look at it and say, God, this was one totally predictable in some respects, not the specific of the virus, but a virus like this was going to happen and will happen again. And you And you think about how much we spend on military security, God, we just took a fraction of that just to be prepared for these type of things. I really do hope that that 
is a major outcome from all of this and opens up a whole different business model that solves, you know, like things like we've not been able to solve on, you know, the, the, the resistant antibiotics, you know, this is the same kind of issue. Like all of these technologies probably could have, very many of them could have been prepared in advance to have a much more rapid response. So uh, I couldn't agree more, Paul. I mean, we actually did a deal earlier this year with Forge Therapeutics on, on new antibiotics. And I, I'm hoping that there is a, a renewed interest in antimicrobial therapies, even for those yeah. things that may not be uh, today issues, but we know with almost 100% surety will be issues in the future, such as multi-drug resistance, multi-drug resistant bacteria, et cetera, and other antivirals. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had on the shelf a series of active antiviral drugs that we could pull off during a pandemic, whether it's a coronavirus, a hantavirus, influenza virus, whatever. And so I, I agree with you fully. So yeah. you know, where it really sort of changed the way we think about what you call military security. Yeah. I want to end there. This yeah. has been a great conversation. I know you all three know that we could do this all day long. So I want to thank you and tell listeners that this and other podcasts and webinars, these are all available along with BioCentury's content at biocentury.com. And our full collection of BioCentury This Week podcasts is also available via Spotify, Apple, Google, and Stitcher.